really do appreciate the presence of everyone this evening. I know we've got some folks that are out of town for the holidays, and we've got some, I'm sure, that will be going out of town over the next few days, but we're glad that you're here tonight. We're going to start off in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you might recognize that chapter as I call it out as a discussion on the resurrection of the dead. There were some apparently in, in, in the church at Corinth, as Paul indicates, that denied that there would be a resurrection of the dead. They denied the resurrection. And Paul establishes the resurrection, the fact of the resurrection here in this chapter. He primarily bases it upon the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus is raised from the dead, he suggests, well then we may be raised from the dead as well. And so if death had no power to retain Christ in the grave, well then, through the power of God, we can be raised also. But it goes on to talk about some other things in connection with the resurrection of the dead. And it uh, talks a, a little bit about uh, the nature of the physical body as opposed to the spiritual body. The body that we have, uh, that we possess here and now, in contrast to the body that we'll possess in the resurrection. Beginning in verse 42, let's read. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable bo a body. That is, our physical body is sown or put into the ground just like a seed is sown into the ground. It's sown, is put into the ground, a physical body, a perishable body, but in the resurrection it will be an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit, referring to Christ. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. And so there's that contrast. We have a physical body, but in the resurrection we'll inherit a spiritual body. We have a body that is perishable. It goes uh, back to the, to the dirt, the dust from where it came. But it was raised a, an imperishable body, a, a body that is immortal, that will never pass away or decay. It is put into the ground a natural body, it has raised a spiritual body. But look at verse 46. He makes a point of saying, the spiritual is not first, but the natural is first, then the spiritual. And so we don't exist before we become physical human beings in our mother's womb. And then, of course, at death we're buried, and then in the resurrection, we become a spiritual body. Now, not everybody believes that. Some people believe that we have an existence before we take on a physical body. And then that body dies and we become spiritual beings once again. But the Bible says the natural is first and then the spiritual. Now, there's one notable exception to that, isn't there? We talked about that. Dustin talked about that this morning. In John chapter 1, John tells us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so in the beginning was the Word. 
The Word was with God. The Word was God. In verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. In the previous verse, verse 17, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. And so he has Christ under consideration in this passage. And so when he says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, he's talking about Christ. And so the notable exception to that idea that the physical is first and then the spiritual is Christ. Christ was spiritual first. Then he became physical, then he was raised from the dead, and now he sits at God's right hand with a spiritual body. But the Bible teaches that Christ, the Son of God, the Word as he described here, had an existence before he became flesh. There's another passage that teaches that, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that he existed in the form of God, chapter 2 and verse 6. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on the cross. And so, existing in the form of God, although existing in the form of God, he took on the form of a servant and was born then into the world. And so it's very clear that the Son of God, God the Son, existed before He came to earth. John chapter 8, Jesus Himself says, Before Abraham was, I am. Now how can that be? Abraham lived 2,000 years before Jesus came into the world. But Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. Incidentally, He doesn't say, I was. He says, I am. And of course, the, the Jews who heard that, they understood the implications of that and they they thought he was committing blasphemy and blasphemy and took up stones to stone him. It's very clear, isn't it? God the Son had an existence in heaven before he became a man and came to earth. Before coming to earth, the Son enjoyed the glory of heaven. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, though he was rich. And so before he came to earth, he enjoyed the glory and the richness and the wealth of heaven. And then he came to this earth in the form of a human being, in physical form as a human being. He lived on the earth and was subjected to all the weaknesses and all the limitations that human beings are subject to. He bled. He sweated. He uh, got thirsty. He got hungry. All, all of those things that we experience, he also experienced. And then he experienced even more than that. He suffered through harsh treatment and criticism, and rejection. He even suffered and died. And so, though he was rich, he became poor, so that we might become rich through him. And so, he went through all that suffering when he came to earth. I suggest he knew that's what was going to happen. And so we might ask this question, well, why would he do that? <laughs> Existing in heaven, in the glory of heaven, he was rich. He was in the presence of the Father, with the Father, equal with the Father. He comes to this earth, lives on the earth as a man, subjects himself to all the limitations that we're subject to, even, even bled and died on the cross. Why would he do that? <laughs> would you do that? 
Why, why would he do that? Well, he tells us. We're going to look at a few statements that Jesus himself makes that explain why he would do that. Why would Jesus come to earth? The first one is found in the Gospel of John, John chapter 6. You might remember on this occasion, Jesus has fed the 5,000. They pursued him over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He criticizes them. You, you're not coming to hear my words and to be uh, an audience to my teaching. You come here because you ate the bread that I gave you. And so he begins to explain uh, his, his mission in coming to earth. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7 says, Paul, Paul says that Jesus humbled himself, took on the form of a servant. We read that just a moment ago. Think of, just keep that in mind. Jesus humbled himself, took on the form of a servant. Now, if that's true, if Jesus took on the form of a servant, we would expect him to do the will of the one who sent him on his mission. That's what servants do, isn't it? Servants don't do their own will. They don't do what they want to do. They do the will of the one who sent them. And whatever that will is, whatever that task is, the servant must do it. He's not free to do his own will. He must do the will of the one who sent him. Even if that mission is difficult, even if he has to experience some personal cost or personal hardship, it's the servant's place to do the will of the one who sent him without question. So look at John chapter 6 and verse 38, where Jesus says, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now that's what we would expect if Jesus took on the form of a servant, to do the will of him who sent me. See, the same kind of thing in John chapter 8 and verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but He sent me. I've come to do the will of the one who sent me. You can see the subjection that Jesus took on to the Father in that statement. He sent me, and so I came to this earth, and I've come to this earth to do His will as a servant should do. It's very clear in the Gospel of John, especially probably 15 to 20 times, Jesus talks about being sent from the Father. And if He's sent from the Father as a servant, then He's under obligation to do the Father's will. And so, if it was the Father's will for Him to be born a Jew, Jesus did that. Galatians chapter 4 tells us he was born of woman, born under the law. If it was the Father's will for him to live a holy, a lowly, and humble life, he would do that. If that was the Father's will, the will of him who sent him, he would live a lowly and humble life. If it was the Father's will that he be resented and rejected, well then he would do that. You see, he didn't come to do his own will, but the will of him who sent him. If it was the Father's will for him to teach and correct and reprove. In fact, in John chapter 7, verse 16, Jesus says, My teaching is not my own, but his who sent me. I didn't come to do my own teaching. I came to do the teaching of the one who sent me. Well, that's what we'd expect if he took on the form of a servant. He came to do the Father's will. And if it was the Father's will that he teach and correct and reprove, He's willing to do it. 
Jesus says that the birds of the air have nests, the foxes have holes, but the Son of Man doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. If it's the Father's will that he go about without a home, he was willing to do that. On the other hand, if it was the Father's will that he go about doing good, healing all who are oppressed by the devil, as Peter says to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, well, then he would do that as well. If it was the Father's will that he be falsely accused, falsely tried and convicted, scourged and crucified, well, he would do it. You see, Jesus didn't come to do his own will. He came to do the will of Him who sent Him. In perfect submission, perfect obedience, as a servant would to one who has authority over Him. Now you might be thinking, well, isn't there one occasion where the will of the Son conflicted with the will of the Father? Luke chapter 22 and verse 42 there, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And doesn't He say, if it's your will, remove this cup from me, Yes, but he also says, not my will, but yours be done. And so even on this occasion where there might appear to be conflict between the Son and the Father and their wills, there isn't any kind of deep division because the Son is always willing to do the Father's will, no matter what that might be. I always do, Jesus says, I always do what is well-pleasing to Him. And so a faithful servant will always do the will of Him who sent Him. If we are faithful servants, as we should be, we will always do the will of our Father. That was certainly true of Jesus. The Father had given the Son a mission, a task to accomplish. He refers in John 3 and verse 36, to the works the Father has given me to accomplish. And of course, He did that. In John 17, He prays, that, uh, and, and refers in that prayer to having accomplished the work that the Father had given him to do. In John 19 and verse 30, Jesus on the cross says, It is finished. Why, why would Jesus leave heaven? Why would he come to earth, live on the earth as a man, go through all the hardships that human beings go through, and, and even more? Why, why would he do that? It was the Father's will. And when he became a servant, it was his obligation then to do the will of the one who sent him. Let's look at John, uh, Luke chapter 19. Look at Luke 19. Now, this is a, a statement that's made in the story of Zacchaeus. Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, Jesus says, The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. Why would Jesus come into the world? Why would He be born into the world? Why would He live as He did and subject Himself to all the degradation and dehumanization? Why would He subject Himself to all that? Because He came to seek and save the lost. You remember the story, verse 1 tells us, He entered Jericho, was passing through. There was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector. He was rich. Verse 3 says, Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead, climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. And so here's a man, Zacchaeus. He wants to see Jesus. No doubt he's heard about Jesus. He's heard about his miracles. He's heard about the wonderful teaching that, that he does. And so he wants to go see him. There's a big crowd around. 
He can't quite see. He's a small man, can't see. And so he runs ahead. He climbs up in a tree so that he can just see Jesus as, as he passes by. And so here's a man who has a great desire to just see Jesus as he passes. But as you, the story unfolds, we'll find that Jesus approaches Zacchaeus and offers to go to his own house. And so look at verse 5. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. It's like Jesus intentionally sought out Zacchaeus. It's like he knew where Zacchaeus was. And when he approached the place, went over to the tree and said, Zacchaeus, come, come down. I'm going to come to your house today. Zacchaeus comes down and he receives Jesus into his house. Well, that produced a negative response from a lot of the people who were standing there. Verse 7 says, When they saw it, all began to grumble, say, He's gone to be the guest of a man who is a, a sinner. And they considered, the people who made this accusation and this complaint, considered this kind of association a defect in Jesus. They knew that Zacchaeus was a tax collector and they had a very negative opinion about him. He must be a sinner. And when Jesus goes to the home of Zacchaeus, well, he must condone the kind of person that Zacchaeus is. He must approve of what Zacchaeus must be doing. After all, he's associating with him. He's even going into his house and eating with him. He must be in support of people like this. And so they made an accusation like that against him. The very next thing we read about in the story is kind of a description of the good character of Zacchaeus. No, he's not a sinner, even though he's not one of your crowd. He's not a sinner. Now, not in, in the way that you think, not in the way that you imagine him to be. Verse 8, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, have my possessions I'll give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll give him back four times as much. I'm not, I'm not what they're saying I am. <laughs> It's not, it's not true, the accusations against me. You know, I'm a very generous person. I try to be fair. If I wrongfully take taxes from anybody, I don't just give them back what I've taken wrongfully. I, I restore four times as much. I, I'm not that kind of person. And Jesus says in verse 9, Today salvation has come to this house. You see, Jesus is there to take him the rest of the way. He sort of reminds me of the man that Jesus talks about in Mark chapter 12 and verse 34, man who tested Jesus by asking him what is the greatest commandment. And Jesus says, love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself. And that man says, you know, you're right. <laughs> that is the greatest commandment. And Jesus says to that man, you know, you're getting it. You're just about there. You're, you're near to the kingdom of heaven. I wonder if Zacchaeus would fall into that category as well. He's a good man. He's trying to do what's right. He's, he's, he's not a, a person who extracts taxes from people dishonestly. He's getting there. He's near to the kingdom of God, and Jesus goes to his house to take him the rest of the way. Salvation has come to your house today in the person of Christ, the source of salvation. You see, all of this is consistent with Jesus' mission. He responds by saying that, you see, I've come to seek and save the lost. And so it's interesting that Zacchaeus was seeking Jesus. He's trying to see Jesus. He's running ahead, climbing up in a tree so that he could see, see, uh, see Jesus. But you see, Jesus is also seeking Zacchaeus, isn't he? 
And he knows Zacchaeus is there. And so as he passes by that way, he goes up and says, Zacchaeus, come down, I'm coming to your house today. You see, that's what Jesus came to do, to seek and save the lost, people like Zacchaeus. So associating with him was a necessary thing. That's what I've come to do, seek and save the lost. Of course I'm going to associate with people like Zacchaeus who themselves are seeking. They're seeking salvation. I've come to bring it to them. Why did Jesus come to earth? Well, not to rule as an earthly king. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Not to create a utopia on the earth. Although if people practice his teaching, we might have that. Not to make everybody feel good about themselves by glossing over their sin. It's okay, you're a good person. You see, Jesus came to seek and save sinners. He came both to seek and to save. He was seeking for people like Zacchaeus. People who had an interest in spiritual matters who wanted to be right with God. Who were seekers themselves. Here are some others in the New Testament who are like Zacchaeus in that regard. Andrew in John chapter 1 goes and gets his brother Peter and brings him to Christ telling him, we have found the Messiah. You see, we've been looking for him and and we, we found him. We've been seeking him and we found him. Joseph of Arimathea in Luke chapter 23 in verse 51 was a man who was seeking the kingdom of God. In Luke 15, Jesus described, you remember that that shepherd who had 99 sheep and he lost one? You remember what that shepherd did? He he went out after the one that was lost and he sought him until he found him. That's what Jesus does. He's seeking those who are seeking him and he continues to seek until he finds them and then he brings salvation to them. Now he wasn't obligated to do this. But he does it because he loves us. And we should be glad he did. We've all sinned. But Jesus has come to save us from the eternal consequences of that sin. Eternal separation from God and condemnation. The question is, are you seeking him? Now he's seeking you. Are you seeking him? Will you you let him find you? Are you seeking him so that he can find you? And so why did Jesus come to earth He came to seek and to save that which is lost. Let's look at Matthew chapter 20. Here's the third reason why Jesus came to earth. On this occasion, some of the disciples, James and John, uh, came with their mother, we are told. They're seeking positions of honor in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, When the other disciples, they find out about that, they become angry about the situation. And Jesus has a little talk with them. In verse 24, he says, Hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers, but Jesus called them to himself and said, Now you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercised authority over them. It's not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Why, was, why did Jesus come to the earth? He came to the earth. Why did he come to the earth? To give his life a ransom for many. Now that's why he came. Now, we know what a ransom is. A ransom is a price paid for the release of someone who's in bondage. For example, a slave could be ransomed and set free. Leviticus chapter 25 explains that. We are in bondage to sin. Jesus says in John 8 verse 24 that 
All who sin are in bondage to sin. You see, Christ has paid the price for our release. He is the ransom for us. He's the price that is paid so that we can be released from the bondage of sin, so that we can be set free to serve God. That kind of language is used in Romans chapter 6 and verse 22. Having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification, the outcome eternal life. Freed from the bondage of sin and shackles of sin. Freed, however, to serve God. The New Testament refers to the price that was paid. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verses 19 and 20 uh, is a case in point. Verse 19, Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. We've been redeemed. We've been ransomed. We've been bought with a price. The price was the blood of Christ. Acts 20 and verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves, for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. Why did Jesus come to earth? To pay the price for our release. Not His own release, but for our release. And the price is His blood. Becoming a ransom was for us, so that we might be free. But notice that this passage says... He came to serve and to give His life a ransom. You see, giving His life a ransom was the specific way Jesus served the will of God. He came to serve by paying the ransom. Now, He served in other ways as well. He served by washing people's feet, John chapter 13. He served in the miracles that He did. Many of the miracles are just acts of service. Feeding 5,000 on one occasion, feeding 4,000 on another occasion, healing people of their infirmities and their, dise- their diseases, casting demons out of people. Those really are just acts of service, aren't they? He's helping people. He's benefiting them. In a sense, his entire life was spent in service to his Father and those he came to save. And if we are his disciples, we must serve as well. You see, a disciple is not above his teacher. It's enough for a disciple to become as his teacher. And if we are his disciples, and he came to serve, then if we are his disciples, we will learn to serve as well. The New Year's coming up, just about a week or so. Find a way to serve in the New Year. Find a way to be a help, to supply a need, Use your time, your effort, your ability, your money to the benefit of others. Learn to serve, and learn to serve in specific ways. Interesting statement is made in the 49th Psalm, verses 5 through 9. It says, Why should I fear in the days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surround me, even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches? No man by any means, uh, no man can by any means redeem his brother. Or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly. He will cease trying forever. We we can't redeem ourselves. We need someone to step in and redeem us. Pay the ransom for us. And of course, that one is Christ. That's why he came. Came into the world to give his life a ransom for many. That's how he performs that act of service for us. One more, and then we'll bring it to a close. 
In John chapter 12, now this, turn over there, John chapter 12, this particular uh, event takes place during that last week leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. Now Jesus has known all along that He was going to suffer and He was going to die, that He would be lifted up, which is a reference to the way that He would be killed. In John chapter 3 makes that statement that He's going to be lifted up. As early as John chapter 3, there's an indication that Jesus knew ultimately He would be going to the cross. He told His disciples about it. In Matthew chapter 16, Peter makes a good confession. Jesus blesses him for that confession. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then He begins to tell them that He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to be delivered over to the chief priests and the, the scribes and those kinds of people. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be killed. And the third day He's going to be raised from the dead. Jesus, Jesus knew all through His ministry, Jesus knew he was, going, he was going to be to the cross. He was going to be lifted up. But as the event drew near, he became more troubled about it. Consistent with human nature, right? I, I would be. You ever have that? You ever have that event in the future? You know, you know you're going to have to do it. And as that time draws near, you get a little bit more and more troubled about it. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 44, it says, In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was in agony. He's in agony before the crucifixion. In Mark chapter 14 and verse 32, he's in uh, great distress. He's troubled. He's deeply grieved. And so in John chapter 12, this is just a couple of days before the crucifixion. And his distress can be seen in this scene. Listen to what he says in verse 27. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Now, is, that, is that what I should say? Father, save me from this hour. And then you can see he adds, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Should I ask the Father to save me from this hour? When the very reason that I have come into the world is for this hour. And so he's going to ask the Father to rescue him from the crucifixion? No. Could he leave his mission unfulfilled? No. Could he say, you know, the good that I've done is sufficient. The good I've done and the, the things that I've taught, that's enough. That's sufficient. I can go back to heaven to my Father's presence. No. Can't do that. He was determined to endure whatever the Father's will was. And you might say, well, didn't, didn't he ask just later, a few days later, remove this cup from me? Only if it's the Father's will. Only if you are willing, remove this cup from me. If not, I'm going to accomplish the mission that you sent me to accomplish. And so by going to the cross, Jesus paid the price for our relief, release. He offered Himself as the necessary sacrifice for sin. He received in Himself the wrath of God against sin and turned it away from us who deserved to receive the wrath of God in ourselves. He provided what was necessary for us to be reconciled. That's the purpose He came. Am I going to ask the, God, the Father to remove me from accomplishing the very purpose for which I came and supplying the need of all these people out here? Is that what I'm going to do? No. That's what I've come to do. That's what I've come to accomplish. And so I'm going to accomplish it. 
And if you believe this, you can be saved from the consequences of your sin. Why, why did Jesus come to earth? Now, he's the one exception to this idea that, that we're physical first, natural first, and then spiritual. In Jesus' case, as the Son of God, he was spiritual first, spirit first, and, and then became a physical human being when he took on human nature. He left the, the wealth, the riches, the glory of heaven, the Father's presence. He left all that to come to earth to suffer as a human being. Why would he do that? What was the Father's will? And as a servant, he was going to do the Father's will. He see, came to seek and save what was lost. That's, that's me and you. And so it's necessary for him to become one of us. He came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And that was the very purpose he came, and he was intent on fulfilling it. Yes, Jesus was born in Bethlehem to the Virgin Mary. He came from heaven, left its glory, walked the earth among us as one of us. He tells us why. To do the Father's will, to seek and save the lost, to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, to go to the cross on our behalf and in our place. You see... He's our Lord and the Savior of the world. And if you believe it, He can be your Lord and your Savior as well. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for this opportunity to come together and to, to worship you today. We pray, Father, that what we've done here today has been pleasing to you. As we think about the reason Christ came to this earth, let, let us uh, very seriously contemplate that, meditate on that. Come to appreciate it more and more and in a deeper and deeper way. Help us to understand better the great sacrifice that he made when he condescended and came and lived in the world as one of us. Father, we know he's seeking for us. Help us, Father, to seek him more and more. He came to serve us. Help us to serve one another. He came to do your will. May we do your will as well. And may, Father, that be our purpose in life. And may it not go unfulfilled. May we learn to do it better and better every day as our lives go by. Again, Father, we're thankful for the opportunity. We're so thankful that Jesus came into the world to seek and save us. And help us, Father, to live that out every day in our lives as long as we live until we pass over and enjoy the glories of heaven ourselves. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.